welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. This morning we, uh, we turn to the 8th or the 8th and ninth Beatitude. Uh, similar, yet the, the one builds upon the other. And it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Powerful, powerful words. And in many words, these, or this Beatitude, or these Beatitudes counter a lot what has gone before. It is completely different in so many ways. Up until this moment, the focus of the Beatitudes have been on humility, meekness, right relationships, mercy, purity of heart, brokenness, and peacemaking, all in many, many ways, positive qualities, things that we should be striving for. But now Jesus decides to include the possibility of persecution for righteousness' sake. Recapping what we've said and and in tandem with what we've done over the last few weeks, now he is saying being persecuted is in sync with being a follower of Jesus. Being persecuted is in sync with being a beatitude person. I have to confess from the outset that when I come to challenges like this in the Word of God, I'm not quite sure how to react, let alone pray. Let's be honest, unless you're a bit strange, unless you're a little bit weird, the thought of persecution is not something that we wish for or something that we pray for. I can honestly say, Lord, I could, I've never said, please, Lord, bring persecution my way. I think if we'd lost overnight, we would have had it. But I've never prayed that. It's not something natural that we do as believers. It's not something that we, we want. Within our lives, we don't mind. We actually want Jesus to help us into hungering and thirsting after him. We want Jesus to do a work of purity in our hearts. He wa- I want him to help me to be, to be merciful or to be a peacemaker. But I got no time, got no desire at all for persecution. I'm probably guessing that this would be our reaction when we read it or when we hear it or hear sermons like this. This is the closest I believe that we get in the Bible to Jesus saying, people, read my lips. Please read my lips. This is going to come your way. This is going to happen for you. He knows it's the one that we don't want to hear, so he says it a couple of times. And I believe that to be part of the reason. But I also believe that For Jesus, this beatitude was the most poignant of them all, for he knows that he is on the way to the cross. He knows that he is going to suffer. He knows that Calvary is before him, and this is the one. He says, you know, they're going to persecute you. You know what I mean? They're going to persecute you for for my sake. They're going to persecute you because I'm going to go and die, and then they're going to persecute you after. It was the most poignant, the most... Probably the one that was on his mind the most, if I can go as far as to say that. But one of the things that we do notice as we look at these Beatitudes is that there is a shift. To start with, it says, they will be persecuted. But as we come into the second part of it, it says, you will become. It goes from the abstract to the personal. Jesus puts it out there, they will be persecuted for being Christians. Then he says, you, you 
will be persecuted for being Christians. He takes it from the realm of theology. He takes it from the realm of theory and makes it reality for us all. When the chances of something happening to somebody else are brought to my attention, I have to be honest, I don't often register. But when something comes my way, my whole attitude towards it changes. And this morning, as we, we're going to look at persecution, we're going to look at different aspects. And I, I think that we need to hold in tension, that it is already happening for many people, and who knows what it could happen for us, or could it happen for us in the future. No two ways about it. This is a tough beatitude. These are tough words, whichever way it is approached. And, but when one teaches scripture systematically, the way we are in this series, we get to teach good things, and we get to teach things that are tough and have to be faced. Tough stuff to preach, tough stuff to listen to. And there's nothing like a good sermon on a Sunday morning about persecution to send you home with a smile on your face. And guaranteed, this is not a good sermon on a Sunday morning about persecution. History writers of the time and historic tradition tells us that many of Jesus' disciples who were listening to these words would lose their life prematurely for the sake of the gospel. Most of them would die. Most of them would die in horrendous and horrific situations. I'm sure that when they, when they died, or just before they were dying, I'm sure they would have recalled these words from their Savior, from their Master. He said, these things are going to happen to you. So I'm sure that when they were dying, they were words of incredible comfort and reassurance to them. Of the 11 disciples that survived Jesus, obviously um, Judas had died. Of the 11 that uh, survived, depending on which tradition you, you listen to, at least nine, if not 10, of all the disciples were put to death prematurely. The only one who survived that we know of is John. They were beheaded, they were crucified, they were speared, they had some incredible deaths. And so this was reality for these guys in years to come. I read something, and I, and I still even can't quite process it. Because, because Paul was a Roman citizen, he wasn't crucified because you had certain rights as a Roman citizen. Instead of crucifying him, they beheaded him. That's a great option, isn't it? Not being facetious or flippant. Oh, do you want to be beheaded or do you want to be crucified? It's, it's just the reality of what happened in those days. Actually, the reality for many followers of Jesus in today's world is that they are persecuted for their faith and for righteousness. And whenever one covers a subject like this or something similar, there is always an incredibly, an incredible difficult balance to be struck. Firstly, on the one hand, you need, we need to hold up the reality that there are people today suffering for being Christians, that they are suffering because they declare the name of the Lord. But Whilst, on the other hand, you have to hold that intention, you do so with the fact that persecution for us is something that's never happened. And so one has to hold up a vision of persecution, whilst, on the other hand, not making the rest of us feel guilty because of where we live. 
We don't want to feel guilty because God has put us in a good and pleasurable land. We don't have to apologize that God has placed us in this country. We are called to be Christians in this situation and fulfill his mandate upon our lives. So it's always that difficult balance. Holding up a vision, challenging people, persecution is real, it's hellish and horrific, but then we are not to feel guilty because where God has called us. But what I do believe is that ignorance is not an excuse. We do need to know what is happening. Just because we do live in a good and pleasurable land doesn't mean it's letting us off, know it, excuse me, knowing what is happening out there. In truth, the facts are startling and upsetting. And 2014 will go down in history as the highest level of global persecution of Christians. 2015 will be even more severe. Actually, things are getting worse every year. Approximately 100 million Christians across the world are persecuted, thus making Christianity by far the most persecuted religious grouping in the world. According to one of the the best organizations out there open doors. Whilst persecution can take many forms, the main weapons used to persecute Christians are imprisonment, torture, fear, rape, and where deemed necessary, death. It's actually interesting to define what Christian means in this content. Out of the high percentage are people who would be born again who we would classify as born-again Christians. That's what's meant by the term. But there is also a small minority of people who would be classified as Christians or who are from the Christian tradition, who would not be Muslim, who would not be Hindu. They would, they would be Christian by tradition. But by far the most or the biggest percentage are people who call, the, call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the things that happen in other that doesn't happen in other countries that does happen here, in a lot of these countries where there is persecution, there is no such thing as nominal Christianity. That is a huge, huge difference. A lot of these places, if you are a Christian, then you are not normal, nominal. You are full out and a believer of Christ. For them, already, it is a matter of life and death. It is believed, and it is a conservative estimate, an average of at least 8,000 Christians around the world are killed each month for their faith, excluding those killed by ISIS. In a radio address to the members of the UN Human Rights, Vatican official said these words, credible research has reached the shocking conclusion that an estimate of more than 100,000 Christians are violently killed because of some relation to their faith every year. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Some, um, some observers believe that this figure is somewhat on the low side, with some sources estimating that it can be as high as 150,000 Christians that are killed each year for their faith. It's hard to say for sure how many are killed, how many are interned, because a lot of people, once they become Christians, they mysteriously disappear. They just end up in labor camps. One of the worst countries for Christians just disappearing literally off the face of the earth is in North Korea. Today it is believed that of something in the region of 400,000 Christians in that country, secret Christians, 70,000 of them are today in labor camps. 
are in concentration camps, and that it's a huge percentage, but it's actually pretty impossible to get a very accurate figure. Sadly, but regularly, many Western governments turn a blind eye to many of the issues, many of these issues, because of firstly, political correctness, the fear of terrorist reprisals, and very often, the mineral wealth of these countries. A friend of mine who is um, the CEO of a uh, Christian watch company, uh, uh, watch, not watches in this watch, but Christian watch across the world to stem the tide of persecution. One of the things that drives him on was that one day, as part of his work, he was in Nepal, and he was, he was lobbying to get some of these Christians released from jail. And he went to see the chief of the police, and he said to them, you are holding this Christian, and the, uh, this Christian pastor, and the p- chief of police absolutely laughed him in the face. And he says, I can because I can. And the the chief of police in Kathmandu went on to say, he said, if I ever take a Muslim prisoner, the Muslim world is in uproar. If I ever put an American in jail, the Americans are in uproar. If I ever put a Jewish person, he says, the whole world of Jewry is up up in arms. If I put a Christian in jail, nobody says anything. And I think actually that's a huge indictment, and uh, he has given his life to protesting that fact that uh, we do nothing so often when people of our own faith end up in jail. We have to be, we be careful of ignorance. One of the consequences of persecution is that in many p- countries, when people get saved, They absolutely tell nobody else. They are very, very reluctant for the fear of being betrayed by families and friends to the authorities. Two incidents that were, when I was uh, working in in the Middle East uh, a few years ago, two incidents that came to to my uh, attention. I I know this one couple. They got saved. They were in Tehran. They got saved. And uh, about six months later, they ended up in prison for about 12 months. And they were beaten, the whole, whole, everything. Just incredible. And when they came out, they just wanted to find out how people had found out that they were Christians and they ended up in jail. And they tell the story that because the person who actually told on them became a Christian themselves. And what happened was they used to hold a small, small little home group in their, in their apartment in Tehran. And they would have people come around. And it's tradition in the Middle East. You take your shoes off at the door and you walk in. And this neighbor of theirs became really concerned because on a regular basis, there were lots of shoes outside the person's apartment. And the only conclusion that they could come to was they must be uh, terrorists or they must be Christians because why are they meeting so regularly? And the, the person went to the police and they got arrested because their neighbor told them, that's, told them them. Just incredibly difficult. In another story I was told, um, I, I'm not very technical, but actually if you go to the Middle East, one, um, Blackberry is far bigger than, than iPhones or Apples, and especially um, for this following reason. There is an incredible desire in a lot of the Middle Eastern and Arabic countries to know more about Jesus. It's so much incredible desire it's coming in through the internet, it's coming in through TV. But I am told, and this, is, this has been verified, that if you have an iPhone and you send a text message, you can see I'm really technical, it goes from your phone, it goes somewhere, and then it gets bounced back. But if you have a Blackberry, it goes directly from one Blackberry to the other. 
That's the way that they work. And one of the reasons that iPhones are not so popular in the Middle East, especially amongst those who want to know more about Jesus, is because very often when they want to text to the West, if they want to text to someone to get uh, a scripture or to get help or to get prayer, it is intercepted by the government. So there is a shift away from iPhones to Blackberries. Now, how many of you knew that? It's not worthless information, but that's the reality. That's how the folks have to live in those situations. Just want to take a few, mo- few moments to show you a YouTube clip that speaks powerfully to our subject matter today. And the clip is of a, he's a real character. His name is Canon Andrew White, who is known as the Bishop of Baghdad. Andrew is a is an old friend of ours, and he spoke for me a number of times uh, when we were back in the UK. And um, I just want to give you a little bit of information about him so that paints a picture. As I said, he is an Anglican minister, and up until about two or three months ago, and his parish is in Baghdad in Iraq. And here are some things that will help paint the picture. Can we just put the picture up, please? Um, There he is. He's a real character. He is, by profession a medical doctor, and he trained in London with President Bashar al-Assad. I don't know if I said that right, but you will know Assad because today he is the president of Syria. They've trained as doctors together. He said that he was his anesthetist very, very often when Assad was doing operation. He knows him incredibly well. During this whole situation up until recently, he is in regular contact with Assad, asking him what is going on. The last time I saw Andrew was in May 2013, and he told me that in the last previous year, from May 12 to May 13, 1,400 people had been saved in his church in Baghdad and saved and baptized in that culture. You don't get saved, you, just also, you don't only get saved, you get baptized because there's that public declaration. 700 of the 1,400 were martyred because they were Christians. Andrew when you, we'll put the volume quite loud. Andrew uh, suffers with multiple sclerosis. He is an incredibly limited by his movement, but he's still, I'm going to say he's bloody-minded. He's stubborn. He just goes everywhere. But he, he will, it affects his speech. So you have to listen hard. After about 40 seconds, it cuts out for about two or three seconds, but it will pick up again. He will talk about ancient Nineveh, which is the city of Mosul today in Iraq. Those of you who have one of the things that he gives me an incredibly hard time about is that whenever you, if you ever have an email from me, my, my usual sign-off is, take care, Chris. He always gives me a hard time, and he says, you are so British. Well, he's English himself. He says, all, you say, don't tell people to take care. He says, tell Christians to take risks. But I think it's easy for him, not easier for him to say him because he has an incredible CV, whereas I'm just a... Welsh guy, and he's absolutely doing some incredible things. Can I just mess with your mind for a couple of things? Got no reason to doubt him at all. He says that his biggest supporter, and I've seen some of the paperwork, his biggest supporter when this guy was in office was George W. Bush, the president of America. George W. Bush would fund him out of his own financial resources. When George Bush Uh, finished his second term in Washington. He rang him that day and he said, I am going, he says, but you're staying. You do a far better work, far more important work than I have ever done. And uh, George Bush still supports him to this day. (laughs) 
this will mess with your mind. He says that without doubt, in the early, when just before America went into Iraq, there were weapons of mass destruction. He says I, he knows because he knows because his own private guards were hired by the Iraqi government to take them out of the country into Syria. He's got no reason to lie. Just said I wanted to mess with your mind. And a couple of other things. He will use the term abuna, and it means father. So we're going to put it up a little bit loud. There's a couple of things that, that are quite traumatic, but nothing that is worse than Channel One News on a regular weekday night. Thank you. Incredibly powerful stuff. Up, up to date, verifiable, verifiable, and that's the reality of what many people have to go through. I, I think that when the scrolls of heaven are unfurled, that guy will just, his reward will be absolutely incredible. Just the work that he does. Uh, just, I know that going to Israel and having to leave Baghdad is, is one of the most upsetting things he's ever had to go, th go through because he had to, had to <coughs> leave his people. I think that when you hear something like that, you just can't but not be affected because blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> so often when we are given or info like that or shown something like that, we can just be left there to hang, as it were. We can just be left there to uh, work out our own emotions. How do we respond? And this morning, there's two things, really, that you can do in order to, to help or to get educated. And the first one is to get educated. There's a lot of good organizations out there. If you just put a, go into Google and put persecuted Christians, one of the first that will come up will be Open Doors. They will, they will help you. They will give you a lot of information. So please, encourage you, go on the websites and have a look and just get, learn about what is happening in the world today. And the second thing is, and this is not a, just a cliche, just pray. When you hear something on the news, pray. When God brings it to your attention, just say, Lord, I just pray that you'll be with my brothers and sisters. Before we move on, though, from the reality of global persecution, the they aspect of this beatitude, I want to make mention of a couple of articles and some writings I read a while back about the response of the Western church to the reality of the persecution of brothers and sisters across the world. And these articles and the writings took the form of a challenge to readers to gauge whether or not they were truly engaging in the issues of life and death as affecting fellow believers. The, the challenge laid out between them four lies that we tell ourselves to justify to ourselves that why we're not doing anything about it or why we do very little about it or why we are not perhaps educated in this area. So I'm just going to go through the questions. We're not going to discuss them. I'm just going to leave them out there because uh, they're very personal and they're quite challenging in that sense. But I just want to leave them out there. It says, the first one that says, I have problems of my own to worry about. So I... Second one, they are better Christians than I am, and I can't really help them. Thirdly, God uses persecution to help the church grow, and I don't want to get in the way. That's my favorite, to be honest. And the fourth one is, I'm doing my bit for the world by doing what I can for the environment. I'm not going to go into it, just leave those out there. So as we, as we come back to the text before us, there is real insight into be in, to be gained, I should say, by looking at the original meaning and the word used here in the Greek for persecution. 
And it's a very simple word, and it's called diaco. And it's used 48 times in the New Testament. And it's the one that's used here in Matthew 5. And it means to pursue something or someone. And it can be extended depending on the form that it is used to oppress, to harass, and to punish. And that is what persecution is to pursue someone and to punish them. It can, it can equally be described as running after someone or earnestly promote a cause. You know, when you think of Paul in the New Testament, he had a cause and that was to crucify Christians. That was his aim, to pursue them. In classical Greek, usage of the word was used to describe a person pursuing a lover, rowers, impel, and driving the great ships of the era and someone pursuing an argument, and what we would use in the vernacular. You know when somebody's got a bee in their bonnet and they go on about it? We sometimes say, they just won't let it go. That's the same meaning of the word here. That is what, or this is what persecution looks like. It is really interesting to note, and really important to grasp, that we are persecuted for righteousness sake, or in a few words he says, on account of me, for doing what is right when it isn't the easy thing to do. When others are asking you, whether at home or in the workplace, to lower your standards, to cheat, to lie, to look the other way, to cover up when we know that we shouldn't, when we, we take a stand against that which we know not to be right, those things that our heart and conscience tell us not to be part of. That too is a, a, a mild form of persecution and it lines up with what we're looking at this morning. I'm not quite sure how to say the next little bit that I want to say, but I'm just going to say it, so please forgive me. Put it down to the excitement of the morning or whatever. Over nearly 35 years in pastoral work, there have been a number of people who come to me and said that they are finding work hard and difficult, that they are not fitting in. And uh, they're having their lives made really difficult and difficult for being a Christian. And they have really felt that they were being persecuted. And for some, that was very much the case. Christians being whom God had called them to be and being light in the dark. This may be the case for some of you this morning, that you're struggling in work because you are being persecuted for being a Christian. However, I have also sat um, with a number of people and they have told me this story. And please forgive me, I think if I worked with them, I'd give them a hard time. <laughs> I'm sure you'd never worked with anybody like that. But you know, some people, ah, they deserve to be persecuted. <laughs> Friends, if you're an idiot in work, you're an idiot. It doesn't mean that you're persecuted. That's another Greek word. <laughs> I'm going to be obnoxious for the next 24 hours until this victory wears off. <laughs> and whatever you give me, I don't see it as persecution. But you know, you, I say all that because I wanted to make lighthearted, but I also wanted to be a real truth there. If you are obnoxious to work, and pe to work with and people give you a hard time, that isn't persecution, that's a character issue or an attitude issue. If you're moody or grumpy and people give you a hard time, it ain't because you're a Christian, it's because you're moody and grumpy. And that is not persecution. 
That is not what the Bible is talking about. You know, if you're grumpy or moody, as I say, or if you're self-opinionated or you're self-righteous or narrow-minded or a Bible basher or pharisaical, that's simply being a pain. Don't get your peas mixed up. That's a pain, not persecuted. I was, um, I was at the rugby referees match, or ref meeting two or three months ago, and somebody came up to me and he said, Chris, how's work going? I said, going really well. And he said, how are things at Gateway? And I said, yeah, things are going well. And he said, praise the Lord. And I said to him, that's the first time you've ever said praise the Lord. He said, probably is. <laughs> I just want to challenge us over that. <laughs> I, remember, I, I remember reading one of my missionaries' e-newsletter. And they, they put in this thing. They were in Western Europe. And they, they, wrote, they wrote to me in this newsletter, and they said, oh, we were being persecuted because we had rented the town hall and the local government, the local mayor had come and closed us down. And it looked really good on the newsletter that they were being persecuted for the sake of the gospel. And I, I rang them up and I said, I won't tell you who it is because they might listen to this. I said, tell me about this because you never mentioned this to me. I didn't know that you'd been closed down. And he gave me this story that that they'd hired the town hall and the local authorities had come in and closed them down. They said, you can't have Christian meetings here. Well, it wasn't quite the truth. They hadn't done all the paperwork properly. They hadn't submitted all the paperwork that was necessary to have a meeting. And I said to him, and I said, you weren't persecuted, you were just wrong. And he said, well, well, he said, you know, I'm sure, he said, he gave me some excuse. We need to be very careful, whether it be locally or globally, that where persecution is taking place, that we do know the reality of it, and that it's not something that happens because we haven't done things right or our paperwork in this case. And it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So here again, we see this posture that should be characteristic of our lives as Christians, living in the here and now, but as it were, that stance that straddles with one eye here, one eye on eternity, one eye in heaven, that, that pose that we are supposed to take as Christians, the reward, the reward that one day will be ours when we see Jesus, but for some of us it will be via persecution. I close, I'm pleased with the worship team, come and join me. I close by saying that I believe Jesus longs for his disciples to desire the reward of heaven more than we desire the reward of the world. Jesus longs for us to have our treasure in heaven and not on earth. Jesus longs for your heart and my heart to be set on heaven and that to leave this earth will be a cause of rejoicing. Jesus longs for us to have our hearts, our hopes, our longings, our joys primarily in heaven that Monday this will be fulfilled when we see him but that in the meantime, that we, we strike this incredible posture of desiring to be a beatitude-like Christian down here, but knowing that our reward will one day be in eternity. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.